This is Ari Koretsky, and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know, dailygiving.org. I've been telling you about it, and I'm going to tell you about it again. Almost 8,100 daily donors to this amazing community-wide charitable infrastructure that allows you to combine with your friends, your neighbors, your relatives, the whole Jewish community to invest charitable gifts in vetted organizations, learn about new institutions every single day from a lovely daily email that gets sent out, and feel like a part of something bigger. Know that you're making a difference every morning. By the time you've had your coffee, you've already donated funds to an amazing cause. Dailygiving.org, please go there today and become a subscriber as I have done. I'm excited to introduce you to someone who shares my first name this week's episode, Ari Middleman. And Ari has done something remarkable, writing a book that's pretty unique and perhaps surprising. But it's a book featuring eight non-Jewish heroes, those who support the Jewish people, who have become allies and friends to the Jewish people and the state of Israel. Fascinating profiles and really excited to share Ari's personal story, how he arrived at this particular book and this mission, and what he's doing to bring a spirit of fraternity and love and highlight the beauty that's sometimes hidden beneath the headlines in our complicated and polarized world. Meanwhile, a reminder, as always, to follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully on Instagram and Facebook. Jews You Should Know with the letter U on Twitter. Subscribe wherever you're listening, whether it's Apple Podcasts. There, it's a follow the button in the upper right-hand corner with the plus sign, or Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you may be listening. Comments or questions to JewsYouShouldKnow at gmail.com. And now, to our conversation with Paths of the Righteous author, Ari Middleman. We are here with Ari Middleman, the author of a recent book just coming out now here at the end of November 2021, Hanukkah 2021, 5782. His book is called Paths of the Righteous, and it is a really unique tome because it is a highlight of non-Jews, Gentiles, who have done extraordinary things to benefit or support the Jewish people. And we're going to get to all of that in the course of our conversation. But first of all, Ari, how are you? Uh, thank you. Doing quite well. Yeah. Thank you, Rabbi, for having me on. It's a pleasure and great to have you here. And when we connected, I hadn't realized before that we actually had met before because of your involvement with APAC and your wife is uh, works for APAC. And I met you at various galas over the year and things like that. So it's good to see what I now realize is a familiar face and um, excited to, to dive a little deeper and actually get to hear your story. I'm often known in Maryland by my incredible wife and in Pennsylvania, where I'm originally from, there's the expression that I married up, uh, which is very true. There we go. Excellent. Excellent. Always better to go that direction. So uh, Ari, you mentioned Pennsylvania. Uh, where in Pennsylvania are you from and, and what's, uh, what's your background? Uh, I grew up in Allentown from kindergarten to 12th grade. I uh, lived there. Before that, was was living in, in New York, and then uh, for the better part of, oh, I guess two decades now, I've been in the Washington, D.C. area. Wow. What was it like growing up in Allentown? I don't know if you know Howie Alpert. He was a rabbi there many years ago, probably before your time, and then he, he moved on to run the Hillel at Penn or in the general Philadelphia region. I don't, I don't recognize the name. Uh, look, I, I currently live in Pikesville, Maryland. The community was a little bit smaller than, uh, than, than here outside of Baltimore, but... Um, Really a warm, wonderful community. Uh, my my rabbis growing up, who maybe succeeded Rabbi Albert, were, were Rabbi Daniel Karopkin, who went on to a leadership role with the OU and now is uh, in Toronto. And then Rabbi Mordechai Torchiner, who also is in Toronto uh, running the Kolel. So I don't know, there's some sort of pipeline, I guess, from uh, Allentown to Toronto. Unfortunately, I've never been to Toronto. I've been elsewhere. You missed the memo, Ari. <laughs> Well, I, I probably not this winter, but uh, perhaps when it gets warmer, I look forward to going up there. But uh, my Canadian experiences have only been the Vancouver and British Columbia and then the Maritime provinces, nowhere in between, unfortunately. Very cool. So what was it like in terms of Jewish life in Allentown? Was there, was there a school there? I mean, how did that form your early identity? Uh, Judaism was and is central to my life. I will tell you that 
growing up with the legal name Arye Eliezer Middleman uh, was was somewhat different. You know, I, I actually wrote my college admissions essay uh, uh, about that and growing into a comfort level with my name. Uh, you know, so there's there, there weren't too many folks with even the name Ari. Um, although in, in grade school, I went to the Jewish day school. For a while, there was an Ari B. I was Ari M. Um, uh, Rabbi, you're Ari K. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, it was it, it was it was certainly different in the 80s and 90s, you know, when you'd, you'd go to the pediatrician and the nurse would come out and didn't know if she's looking for a boy or a girl with, you know, and how to even pronounce Arye, Araya, any one of these types of things. But wonderful, warm community. Uh, and then as I made my way into to high school, got, got very active in NCSY, where Allentown was looped in with... Uh, uh, the great state of New Jersey, which has one or two more Jews uh, than uh, than Allentown, as well as Muncie, for that matter. So I spent almost every Shabbos uh, during the school year uh, at a different congregation up and down the Jersey Turnpike. That was was that Matt Tropp back then in the? Uh... Yes, yeah. This is good. Yeah. Good Jewish geography. You're bringing back names I haven't thought about for some time. So <laughs> now, how did your family end up in Allentown? Was that just like a a work thing, or what brought them there? My late mother was born and raised in Philadelphia. My, my father did his uh, PhD at Temple University in Philadelphia. Uh, so we had family, we still have family uh, in and around Philadelphia. Uh, we were coming from New York City um, and my father was actually offered, uh, he had always wanted to go into academia. He was previously an executive with, with the AJC. And uh, you know, as, as a three-year-old, uh, I certainly didn't understand this, but but my family would joke that he was a spy because in the 80s, he would be running off to, to Minsk and Kiev and these places with AJC delegations. So incredible work that he was doing with American Jewish Committee, but uh, he always wanted to go into academia. And uh, the opportunity came about at Muhlenberg College, of all places, that they were looking for a Jewish studies professor. This is the uh, oldest Lutheran school in America, and uh, they were looking for a Jewish studies professor. I think professor. it's about a third Jewish though. If I'm not mistaken. It, it is. It is. <laughs> and uh, my little understanding of academia, um, although my, my brother's a PhD uh, as well, is that yeah, it's always a question until you get tenure and you know, how long you're going to stay. But it turns into a, a, a great journey for him. What, what was your father's specialty? I'm going to now admit publicly that I have not read any of my father's books, but I highly recommend <laughs> that listeners uh, do. Um, they're, they're heavily fo- footnoted and such. And he still is. He's, he's a professor now at uh, JTS, the Jewish Theological Seminary um, up by Columbia University that, that deals with Jewish ethics, um, nuances about early German Jewish constitutions, Jews in the public square, these, these types of themes. But his 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 PhD adaptation, uh, at least I know the title. I, I can say that proudly that it's between Kant and Kabbalah. Interesting. Sounds like you couldn't be more uh, thrilled and, and uh, engaged. <laughs> um, my folks always uh, joke that I have the uh, street smarts, and the, the 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 other men in my family have the book smarts. So. <laughs> I guess it's a veiled compliment or a backhanded compliment or a or a direct insult, one or the other. So. Having grown up in this this sort of very literate Jewish family uh, with a professor as a father and in small town America, uh, what were your early aspirations? Where did you imagine yourself going? Well, hey now, Rabbi, we, we Allentown is the third largest metropolis in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. So uh, I, I take I take a front from saying small town. I think it's My a whopping hundred one hundred and twenty thousand people. Uh, the region has about eight thousand Jewish households. But no, I, I'm joking. It, it's significantly smaller than. Where, where you and I live now, but I'm, I'm sorry. So I, you know, growing up, I, and, and, and frankly, even now, as I'm figuring out what I'm going to do with, uh, with my life when I grow up, uh, as I suppose a lot of folks turning 40 say, I just kind of did things a year at a time, a day at a time. I mean, my best memories compl- completely happened by happenstance. Um, so I don't know necessarily. Look, I, I, I knew for certain I didn't want to go and get a PhD and go into academia. Um, my, my late mother was the Hillel director for many, many years at Muhlenberg. And I, I knew and, and know to this day that, that Judaism is, is a central part of my life. This, you know, this is, this is something that uh, you know, I developed a passion for community service and uh, giving back to the, the broader Jewish community. I had the chance when my father was on sabbatical to, to live in Germany for a period, uh, which was very eye-opening, uh, being in grade school. And as I said, having the name Ari Eliezer Middleman, and it was shortly after reunification. So I always had an interest in, in kind of Jews in the world and kind of broader uh, engagement um, with, with the non-Jewish community, which is what happens, I guess, on growing up on a college campus when you have all sorts of 
diverse characters over for Shabbos dinner or Shabbos lunch uh, on Friday uh, and Saturday. Yeah, and then I had the I had the chance. I distinctly remember this to go to the inauguration in 1992. Um, I don't think that we were necessarily a political family. We didn't have you know yard signs out or you know door knocking or anything like this. But it you know that certainly leaves a strong mark. Uh, you know, on, on a little ten year old who's trying to look over the crowd, and it's probably the largest crowd I'd ever been in, and that certainly intrigued me about all things Washington. So, what did you want to do professionally early on? Did you have a, a clear goal? Yeah, as I got more involved with NCSY and you know, for for students who are familiar and other listeners, so it's it's it's, it's a youth group um, affiliated with the Orthodox Union. You know, the the various weekend gatherings we call them Shabbatons. It's you know, meeting diverse Jews, you know, hearing speakers. It certainly intrigued me more and more about Jewish communal service. But at the same time, as I said, I think I think my north star, what I was really attracted toward, was was kind of engaging with leaders in the non-Jewish world and trying to uh, explain uh, and engage uh, and provide perspective on our tradition and our faith. And I don't know that I'm in a position to, to do that, but um, it's a long way of saying that that those leadership skills that, that, that we were learning as high school students, yeah, it translated ultimately to me interning and then going to, uh, to undergraduate in, in, in Washington, D.C. So where did you go? Did you go to a GW or AU? I went to the George Washington University. I will say I, you know, I, I had little interest in um, in going to a big urban university. I mean, growing up on Muhlenberg's campus, so that was kind of my image and version of what a college experience should be. And once again, as I said, just good things happen by happenstance. My, my, my father has an expression, there's no word for coincidence in Tanakh, that there's no word in biblical Hebrew for coincidence. Everything happens for a reason, but I Total curveball. I, I fell in love with GW, uh, which is you know, far, far removed from a Muhlenberg, grassy green, small liberal arts school and applied early decision. And um, it's actually right around this time of year, 20, uh, 20 years ago uh, in December that I, uh, I I got accepted. And was your goal to get involved in political life or international relations? I always joke with the kids I meet from GW that basically they only have one major option there, <laughs> international relations. So you know, what, what was your was your goal to take advantage of that whole DC experience? So in 1998, uh, going back many, many moons ago, maybe perhaps some of your listeners were, were not even born. Uh, I'll never forget this. I was, I was home alone. It was a Sunday afternoon and a woman knocked on our door there in suburban Allentown. And um, I just didn't even know this was a concept. And she said that she's running for state representative. And I really didn't have much of a sense of what a state representative was. And I said, okay, this is intriguing. And she was kind of uh, eager to speak to my folks because I wasn't uh, yet, uh, you know, I wasn't on the voter rolls. Uh, well, long story short, introduced her to some of the neighbors. Yeah, then uh, she she was elected to the state house. She rose up in leadership very quickly in the state house. Broke all sorts of glass ceilings uh, as as a female in the state house, and um, it just made me super intrigued about uh, the electoral process and you know, all the blessings that were afforded here in the U.S. Uh, so. As a long way of saying that, yes, I went probably like countless others to GW University with an interest in electoral politics. Amazing. And so did, did, did that imply that you were looking to run for office at some point or to be involved in campaigns or did you have a sense of what that actually would, would mean? I had no sense. And I, well, you know, the one sense I had is I had no interest in putting my name on the ballot, um, being behind the scenes uh, and telling other people's stories is very much what I've been doing for the last 20 years. But what I will say, and I don't know if GW uh, still has this as part of their freshman orientation, but they said, make Washington your classroom. I took it to heart and I very seldom was in class. <laughs> I wasn't the best uh, <laughs> student to be candid. So That's great. That's great. What were some of the formative experiences that you sampled while in uh, the DC milieu? Well, uh, and we're recording now during Hanukkah um, and I, I, I don't think I'll forget for years to come uh, dressing up in compliments of uh, Rabbi Levi Shemtov and the Chabad dressing up like uh, ancient Greek uh, you know, with the tunic, with the fake spear, with the plastic helmet, all of these things and standing on the stage uh, at the National Menorah Lighting. That was that was something I did, uh, I think, each of my years, um, which uh, I don't recommend uh, in cold weather, but uh, it was, you know, it was cool being there on stage. But no, in, in, in all seriousness, um, although that was serious and fun, definitely my most formative Jewish 
experiences of my life uh, up until that point, uh, and really my most powerful memories uh, from being at GW uh, happened once as a freshman and then once again as a senior. So uh, there was a incredible opportunity. It happened in the Washington area, uh, I believe in the Boston area, a few other places that students from the different universities would apply and then they would get selected to incredible program that would take us, it was 10 of us, as I recall, it was either 10 days or maybe even 14 days uh, to a community in Ukraine. So, uh, and this was over Passover, over Pesach. And it was not only the first time I was meeting students from University of Maryland and, and from Georgetown, even George Mason, but it was also the first time I was going to Ukraine. <laughs> um, but it was an inc- incredible program in that, uh, so Pesach falls March, April, but as I recall, I think we were selected in November before the Thanksgiving break and would then do weekly, as I recall, uh, evening leadership training and also deep dives on Soviet Union history, uh, Jewish history, uh, Menhagen customs around Pesach, around Passover. And then we ultimately got to go. And, you know, it's like the old... uh, Mike Tyson line, everyone has a plan until you're hit in the nose. Um, and it was excellent. But you know, going to Ukraine um, in the months after September 11th, 2001 was just an eye-opening experience, especially as a large uh, group of about a dozen Americans. And then you know, everything that we had, we had heard and prepared for meeting students our own age who had just gone on birthright or who had uh, aunts and uncles who had made Aliyah and for a variety of reasons, they had chosen to stay back in Ukraine. And so very eye-opening experience, and you know, then I had the, the chance to to lead the group uh, as a senior to go back, and it led to then in 2006, I actually I, I went on my own to uh, uh, with a friend actually to uh, to celebrate Hanukkah uh, in the same community of Kharkov, Ukraine, which is right up by the Russian border. It's 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 not the easiest place to get to. Um, it's a long, long bus ride uh, from Kiev, but um, really eye-opening experiences. Incredible. What was the purpose of those educational missions, like import Jewish knowledge and opportunity to the people in the in that region, or what was kind of the premise behind the those excursions? Yeah, so uh, I'm not an expert. Uh, listeners uh, uh, can verify, but I mean, Kharkov is a city of hundreds of thousands of people, maybe even millions. I'm not I'm not sure, but a significant city, very large, more than Allentown. <laughs> it's certainly larger than Allentown. I think. I think there's there's probably kind of communist era concrete housing blocks uh, that uh, have the total population of Allentown uh, across Kharkov. But um, very large university presence, and I recall that one seder would would be just students, and it was us as ten American students with north of a hundred uh, Ukrainian students. Uh, the next night was uh, the Ukrainian students again with their parents, with their younger siblings, even grandparents. And then over uh, the rest of Passover, some instances, you know, spending two plus hours and, uh, you know, essentially the post-Soviet version of a minivan going out into communities uh, where Holocaust survivors who were, you know, way up there in the years homebound to bring them um Essentially, a mini, uh, you know, a mini seder, uh, the seder plate and, and and matzah and such, and then you know, often in the evening during Cholamoy, during the, the 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 other days of Passover, we would just bond with you know, fellow 18, 19, 20 year old uh, Ukrainian students who found out we have a lot more in common than we have uh, apart, and it just kind of reaffirmed for me what I learned when I was younger in Bonn, Germany, that. You know, Jews might speak different languages and uh, have different backgrounds and and all of this, but there's uh, you know at the end of the day uh, there's the expression Kol Yisrael Avim that we're we're all in it you know together to take care of our brothers and sisters. So after you graduated college, did you get into the political sphere? Did you start working on the Hill as is so uh, de rigueur on uh, you know in, in those in those precincts? What was your actual path at that point in terms of getting involved in politics and the electoral system. You know, so I, I actually never worked on Capitol Hill. I never uh, had an internship on Capitol Hill. I've, I've always uh, been an arm's length from Congress and the official halls of power, but more so in, in you know, from, from, from the campaign lens. So in, uh, even in the, around this time, the fourth quarter of 2002, I, I got involved in a presidential campaign. Um, as you know, for better or worse, 
these heat up very early uh, and are very costly endeavors. So it's not just the even number years. Um, in 2003, I, as I alluded, I didn't spend a lot of time going to class. I even went to places like Iowa and New Hampshire, which are far away from GW, Washington, D.C. classrooms. And then in the uh, spring of uh, March of 2004, my, my candidate lost about out of the presidential primary. As we know, John Kerry was the nominee. Actually, was, I was afforded the opportunity. It was, it was pretty intimidating, but to speak on a rally stage at GW in front of thousands of students and the international media as, as uh, John Kerry was coming to campus and trying to, I guess, demonstrate that he, you know, he didn't have the, the necessarily, he wasn't the most popular amongst the youth vote in the primaries, but he, uh, you know, he was, he was ready to go into battle in, uh, in 2004 uh, with, with all the enthusiasm that students allegedly bring. I say allegedly because we need more students to participate in the political process and not be disaffected. Yeah, it's, uh, I think the, the, the voter turnout rates for that demographic are notoriously low. It's very, very unfortunate. I, I actually, I wrote, I heard an op-ed after the tragedy in a in Parkland, Florida. With it was always just the way I was raised that you know that, that we should always look for optimism and, and hope. And um, you know the 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 main focus was uh, that 2018. Let's have record number participation in the 18 to 25 year old demographic. Unfortunately, we have not necessarily seen a a, a jump in voter participation. But yeah, I've I've had the chance, as I said, to go to go to Ukraine and to work in places all around the world uh, in more recent years, and it's incredible uh, the the voter turnout numbers in some of these fledgling democracies. Uh, and here we just take it for granted. But I, I I digress. So at that point, what did you end up doing? You know, what what was kind of like the I guess maybe give us like an overview of your career from post college through the next you know. 10, 15 years. And I think you jumped around a bit, but what was kind of that? What was that experience? Well, I, I did what every nice Jewish boy whose name's Ari Eliezer Middleman does. Um, I went to Croatia. <laughs> um, I was kind of frustrated and thought I was done with the U.S. electoral politics. And um, my folks were not very keen. You know, I was intrigued. This was after the tsunami, if we remember the awful tsunami uh, uh, in the Indian Ocean. And I was intrigued about volunteering and, and different programs uh, that I could pursue there. But it was a good thing I didn't because, as I said, everything happens uh, you know, uh, for a reason. But just coincidentally, there was a grant and an opportunity to work in super rural Croatia. So uh, Croatia shaped, I tell folks, kind of like a boomerang. Um, and folks are very familiar with the one side of the boomerang, which, which is the beautiful seacoast. And uh, across from Italy on the Adriatic, uh, I was on the far other end of the boomerang uh, where the uh, where the war really began. And this was less than 10 years after the war had ended. And the focus was peace and reconciliation work uh, between um, uh, Catholic uh, Croatians, which are the vast majority of the country, and then Eastern Orthodox uh, Serbs. Uh, this is along the Serbian border. And then for that matter, along the Bosnian border uh, as well. And... Very eye-opening, exciting work for a young American. Um, once again, I it really was curious about Jewish communities and got to know uh, the Jewish community of Zagreb, which was going through some changes uh, at, at the time. Uh, would go there uh, on weekends, go up to Hungary quite a bit. It's really a fascinating, uh, dynamic Jewish community in Budapest, uh, which was about a five-hour train ride. Um, and then over to Serbia, which which was very interesting, um, but has a relatively large Jewish community uh, for the region. But very interesting because as an American, just a few years after 1999, when uh, NATO had bombed uh, bridges uh, and, and other uh, installations uh, in the, the period of conflict with Kosovo, so being an American, being a Jew, coming from Croatia, I had more than one interesting experience uh, at, at at that border and. Uh, at the bus and train stations, but it's a, it's a it's a long way of saying that the former Yugoslavia is it's it's like a virus. Once you get it, you can't shake it. It's been a it's been an important part of uh, uh, my life. But anyhow, uh, that that doesn't directly answer your question, Rabbi. I'm sorry. So I had the opportunity to uh, to come back to my home state of Pennsylvania and work for the state treasurer at the time who was uh, mounting beginning to mount a campaign um, against uh, the the U.S. senator. And um, came on board on day one of the campaign in March of 2005 and 
didn't realize it was going to be an eight-year journey, but it was a really wonderful, stimulating, eye-opening experience to engage not just with Jewish communities across Pennsylvania, but but also across the country uh, and, and really get familiar with U.S.-Israel dynamics and just the power uh, of, of organizing and the importance of our community speaking with one voice. Fabulous. So what what specifically did you do in that capacity? What were the particular roles that you assumed in a formal sense? So in 2005 and 2006, you know, for better or worse, the, the name of the game in modern campaigns is fundraising. Uh, and that, that, was, uh, that, that was my role and got to meet, you know, Pennsylvania is a large and diverse place. I mean, you got to meet um, folks in their backyards and, and corporate boardrooms and everywhere in between. Uh, the week before Thanksgiving, 2005, actually, I got to travel with then state treasurer Bob Casey and his wife and uh, a few uh, a, a few prominent Pennsylvanians, uh, Jewish Pennsylvanians, to, to Israel, which was uh, was and is the most memorable uh, trip I've ever had to Israel. It was 2005. Uh, uh, well, I guess every trip to Israel, there's something happening in the region, uh, but it was there was just a, a lot uh, happening, and to go with this small mission um, with folks from Pittsburgh and from Philadelphia, the Philadelphia suburbs, from Scranton, and a sitting state treasurer. It was just just incredibly, incredibly memorable. Uh, going forward, we, we had a variety of, uh, I mean, every day, literally, it was a new adventure. Um, I was living in Philadelphia at the time when he uh, took office, uh, helped open up a regional office there and other offices uh, in Pennsylvania, and uh, frankly, racked up a lot of miles. Uh, I had uh, one of the first Ford Escape uh, hybrids, and it's a good thing I had a hybrid because we were we were driving all over, uh, the two of us, myself and the senator, um, up and down the Pennsylvania Turnpike and the Northeast Extension and all these other roads uh, that listeners might know. Um, yeah, primarily on Mondays and, and Fridays, those are the, uh, the, the busiest days. Um, and then in 2008, uh, in March 2008, much to everyone's surprise, uh, including uh, us on the senior staff, he um, he endorsed uh, the Obama campaign, and I I was uh, yanked back from uh, the, the 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 few months of a government capacity paid by Uncle Sam to a, a full time uh, campaign uh, capacity um, as. I think, I mean, as is often the case, but I, I think the Obama and McCain operations spent more time in Pennsylvania than than any other uh, uh, swing state. And if they weren't there, then we were certainly doing stops at diners and senior centers and elsewhere uh, on on their behalf. So a lot of campaigning and a lot of, kind of trekking the, uh, you know, putting on the miles, it sounds like. In 2010, it was a, a little bit of a, a breather, um, but there was you know, listeners might remember, and he was he was uh, really a trailblazer for the Jewish community. Uh, the late Senator Arlen Specter, but uh, he changed parties, and it was a really contentious uh, race. So we were deeply involved in that, and then before we knew it. Uh, it was 2012, and it was the senator's first re-election. Um, we had a chance to build out the team. And uh, at that point, by the way, he, uh, Senator Casey was the chair of the Near East. Uh, it's a mouthful, as, as is a lot with, with uh, as is often the case with Washington, but the Near East, South, and Central Asia subcommittee of the Foreign Relations Committee. Um, so at that point, we had already been doing quite a bit with the pro-Israel community nationally and across Pennsylvania, but going into re-election, uh, and just with the dynamics uh, in relations in the Middle East, um, this was the beginning of, of just the treachery uh, uh, up in Syria. But so we, we were very engaged uh, in 2011 and 2012 with diaspora communities uh, in addition to the Jewish community. Fantastic. So I guess let's fast, fast forward again. Wh- where have you been most recently? And then I want to, of course, get into the book. A sure thing. So as I've alluded to, you know, just good things happen when you least expect them. And in 2011, Senator Casey was headlining a uh, event at, at a shul at a synagogue outside of Philadelphia. Uh, it was an APAC event, as I recall, with 600, 700 people. I take the back. He wasn't necessarily headlining, but he was a guest of honor. The headliner was Dr. Judea Pearl, um, who was the father of uh, Daniel Pearl, a blessed memory. And 
yeah, I, I was I was with the senator, and 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 uh, little did I know that the organizer of the event uh, was was my wife. So as we're backstage, uh, you know, I'm I'm sharing with with her. You know, we're on a bit of a time schedule. You know, we're only going to be able to be here for uh, less than an hour. She wasn't taking that quite well, but uh, anyhow. Uh, one thing led to the other. We got engaged in 2012. And I- one second, I want to pause there. So, how did you go from arguing with a woman backstage to asking her out, and uh, or somehow going out with her and <laughs> marrying her? Well, I could give you and your listeners my side of the story, which I believe is the facts. <laughs> uh, but you, you, you would have to have her on to get um, what what she believes are the facts. But I, I will say that I, I credit, I do not blame, I credit Senator Casey for uh, introducing the two of us. Um, and uh, I think it was just it was it was beshared. I mean, it was meant to be that it happened at an event with with seven hundred pro Israel activists. Um, so I, I knew though in November twenty twelve when Senator Casey uh, overwhelmingly won re-election, it was it was an honor to be uh, a part of that. Uh, that it was time to uh, to move on uh, after eight wonderful years uh, running around uh, uh, Pennsylvania and beyond uh, uh, with him. So in the early part of 2013 moved, still own a, a house up in Pennsylvania as investment property, but you know, said, okay, uh, we're, we're getting married. And we got married and we uh, made a home uh, here in Maryland. And I got kicked off the Pennsylvania voter rolls. Um, and I've done, um, like so many folks, uh, uh, I've been in the world of consulting um, in, uh, in, in Washington uh, for, what would that be now, 2013 to now eight years. And for those who are unfamiliar with that particular industry. Can you just d- describe exactly what that means in terms of political consulting and you have your own shop over there? I am sure, as a listener, you are familiar with The Forward, the longstanding Jewish publication. Well, The Forward has a new podcast called A Bintel Brief, based on the longstanding advice column in the paper. It is now turned into an audio advice column where you could get interesting answers to fascinating questions from Gina Green, who is a movement builder, very active in the Jews of Color initiative, as well as Lynn Harris, a writer and activist, also a comedian and a former advice columnist for Glamour and other print magazines of blessed memory. A Bintel Brief, B-I-N-T-E-L is the word Bintel Brief. Give it a listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. So I have periodically been registered as a lobbyist. Um, I am currently not registered as a lobbyist. Uh, that, that's a technical term um, of you know advocating that a you know how a bill becomes a law. But I'll give an example of two examples of meaningful projects that I've. It's been an honor to be a part of and uh, con- to continue working on. Um, one of the individuals I met uh, over the years, uh, just incredible, inspiring story. Uh, first. Uh, Soviet Jewish family to make it to Connecticut uh, way back in the uh, the, the 70s. Uh, long story short, they're originally from Tashkent, which uh, is now independent Uzbekistan. Our nation gets attacked on September 11th. He leaves uh, Boston on Thanksgiving, goes to the U.S. Embassy in Tashkent and says, look, I know Uzbek, I know Russian, I know uh, English, you know, this country gave me everything. How can I help? And he becomes, uh, he completely changes his job, uh, this nice Jewish guy from Boston, and he becomes a military contractor. Uh, as you know, we, we launched the, uh, um, the campaign into Afghanistan, primarily from Uzbekistan, assisting him with those efforts and engaging with Department of Defense. But also, what's very exciting is, is you know, the trekking back and forth uh, that he was doing from Uzbekistan to Boston, what's halfway in between. Montenegro. So Montenegro is this beautiful little country uh, adjacent to Croatia, same language that they speak in, in Croatia. And um, he was the private security that he was using when he would do work in Afghanistan were all from the former Yugoslavia. And they convinced him, they said, look, halfway in between, you know, is our beautiful new little country, Montenegro. You should come. You should uh, you should check it out. Uh, this was during the 2008 real estate collapse and uh, the financial crisis. Uh, he falls in love and he uh, with the region, and he starts buying up property and assets. Uh, as I said in 2013, I'm building up a book of business and clients. He asked me to come on board not only to help with DoD uh, Department of Defense, but uh, to really help as Montenegro is beginning its path to NATO and growing as a country. It had only been independent for a few years at that point. 
and to help with transparency and rule of law issues and everything that an American businessman uh, needs uh, operating in a frontier market. Long story really short, about five years worked on uh, getting Little Montenegro into NATO. Uh, thank God they are in NATO. They're uh, the second most recent member of NATO. So multiple congressional delegations helped with those. Something that was really meaningful is mirroring what we did with the U.S. Embassy, uh, which sponsored artists uh, to come over uh, and do cultural diplomacy. We uh, engaged the Israeli Embassy up in Belgrade, Serbia, and they brought over uh, right before Rosh Hashanah 2016 an Israeli, uh, coincidentally from Toronto, as I recall, Israeli artist, um, and then an Israeli Arab uh, uh, artist uh, who were in residence at my client's resorts doing great cultural diplomacy. And it was just a meaningful, meaningful, you know, this was in 2016, you had, uh, and unfortunately still have just unprecedented violent anti-Semitic incidents across Europe, but having the Israeli flag, the American flag, the Montenegrin flag uh, at a beautiful resort on the shores of the Adriatic going up as you know, folks are eating falafel and hummus and these things, uh, celebrating uh, these relationships. Uh, just one other quick example is I've worked for years with the Philadelphia Orchestra. The Philadelphia Orchestra since the end of World War II uh, has really been uh, the America's premier cultural diplomats. And uh, folks might remember the opening of China at the personal request of President Nixon and Secretary Kissinger really began with the Philadelphia Orchestra visiting. It was the largest American delegation to visit. But jump ahead, we were tasked in a very meaningful way to celebrate Israel's 70th birthday in 2018. And uh, the orchestra went over, uh, frankly, in the face of very aggressive, very nasty, bordering on violent BDS incidents. But the orchestra went over. And when the orchestra travels, the work offstage, I would argue, is even more meaningful. So going and engaging Israeli Arabs and Palestinians children, as well as all the diverse Jewish faces um, going to hospitals, you know, just that direct people-to-people diplomacy. And so it's been an honor to do that with the Philadelphia Orchestra all around the world, but in particular to do that to celebrate Israel's 70th. Beautiful. Okay, so let's get to the book. It's a very unique book for a nice Jewish boy, you know, Ari Eliezer, to highlight eight outstanding non-Jews in their work, although you've had a very sort of cosmopolitan kind of journey yourself and obviously have interacted with people all over the world. But what inspired this book? Why now? And what's it really all about? Well, thank you. Um, Look, I'm I'm sure for your incredible work on campus uh, and for many listeners, it goes without saying that the last few years have been quite difficult. Being originally from Pennsylvania, being intimately familiar with the community in Pittsburgh the last three years, uh, starting with that awful Saturday Shabbos morning, uh, it, it, it just left a mark. So the truth is, I didn't set out to write a book. Uh, it was a tough time. I lost my mother about a, less than a month after uh, the tragedy in Pittsburgh. And to be candid, uh, our home gym and the 100-pound punching bag that I keep in our gym, it just it wasn't the outlet that I needed, although it was a good investment, that 100-pound punching bag. So during the morning period, uh, period of Avelis, as we say, there was another attack in Poway and uh, outside of San Diego. And then right around now, listeners will remember in, in, in the horrible attack in Muncie, New York, in Jersey City, New Jersey. It's just been, it's been a difficult time. But I didn't, I, it, what happened is that in the spring, it was about two weeks after Passover 2019, um, which two weeks after that horrible attack in San Diego, there was a program my wife was organizing one evening. And uh, the last thing I wanted to do, frankly, was to keep my suit on uh, longer. I'd been in Washington probably for 11 or 12 hours. But uh, she said, oh, this is going to be a good speaking program. And minimally, there's there's loads and loads of sushi. Like any good Jewish event, there's going to be lots of sushi. So I said, all right, well, it's not, not too far from our house. Let's swing by. So I swing by for the, the sushi, really had little interest in kibitzing and chatting with uh, uh, the, the folks uh, there. And the speaker starts his remarks. And I, I'm in the back. I'm really not paying attention. And I swing around. I say, whoa, this is phenomenal. But a six foot five African-American firefighter had come up to Maryland from South Florida. And he's telling the story of how during his vacations, uh, he's going over to Israel, to the Gaza envelope, the border with Gaza, to uh, to fight wildfires that have been set by Hamas terrorists via uh, kites and balloons. And all that exhaustion and just, you know, frankly, feeling down in the dumps, uh, it just 
went out the window. And the next morning I said, I, I got I to spend time with this guy and really got to know him a bit better, stayed in good touch with him. He's telling me more and more stories. Uh, his name's Aston Bright, by the way, and he's the first uh, profile in the book. Incredible. So at that point, did you know you were going to write something about him? No, I just, just through chatting with him, I said, you know, this is just an inspiring story that I personally needed during this tumultuous, difficult time period. But as I'm hearing more and more from him and, uh, you know, my, my wife and others are encouraging me and reminding me that there's other unique people in my Rolodex and people that I'm probably one degree removed from that aren't in the headlines. They're, they're largely unheralded, but they have some very inspiring life experiences that are not only doing good for our community, for the state of Israel, but, but also really educating their peers um, and inspiring their peers. In the case of Aston, that, that means other non-Jewish firefighters uh, amongst the other seven that I profile. Uh, just remarkable stories that have, have inspired me. So at that point, did you start reaching out to people and collecting profiles? Correct. Yes. And that was going quite well. And then all of a sudden, uh, uh, I'm sitting down with people in, in person, um, uh, and then all of a sudden, the pandemic hits. <laughs> and uh, we discover uh, the powers of Zoom. And uh, we just discover the, uh, you know, that, that even more so during these dark, uh, uncertain times that, that these, these, these stories uh, uh, could bring a little bit of light. The stories are done in such a way that they're about 4,000 to 5,000 words. They're kind of fast-paced, short stories. They're by no means a, just a dry retelling of these incredible resumes. Uh, I would encourage listeners and readers to, to, to do their own investigation. These are generally kind of focused on the aha moment or when the light bulb went off that they, uh, they completely changed their career to uh, uh, benefit our community. So give me a, a, a taste of some of the other featured personalities that you had the opportunity to bring to light. Well, uh, so it's four men and four women, black, white, and Latino, uh, some Americans, uh, some otherwise. It's a very dangerous question, right? It's like asking a teacher who's his favorite student is or something like that. You know, maybe just because we've uh, alluded to the work I've done and the interest I've had in the former Yugoslavia, there's an uh, incredible individual, once again, not necessarily a household name, but I believe should be uh, Dragan Premarats. He was my age uh, back in 2003. He was in his late 30s, had two young daughters, and he was educated in this country. And uh, a newly elected government in Croatia said, we want you to be the education minister. And he was a medical doctor and really didn't, just was a total, you know, uh, out of left field. They asked him to be the education minister. He said, okay, wow, you know, I'm in my 30s. That's fascinating. Our country's uh, just about 10 years old. But he said, look, you know, during my medical training, my mentors were Jewish. And I've actually visited Israel a few times, uh, learning from the best of the best uh, in the biosciences and, frankly, you know, fields I don't understand and know. And he said, if we're going to completely rejigger the curriculum of our country, of Croatia, and come out of a, a post-socialist uh, economy, we're going to model Israel. And I won't give away the, uh, uh, the chapter on Dragon, but he really stuck his neck out there. He wasn't the foreign minister. He didn't have a background in diplomacy. Frankly, the Iranians were aggressively courting Croatia at the time. But uh, I would argue that the relationship between uh, Zagreb and Jerusalem is, is, if it isn't the top, then it's one of the top three strongest relationships that Israel has in today's European Union. And it's all just by happenstance by a, a, a guy in his late 30s, also the father of a young daughter who uh, took a big chance. Incredible. Uh, give me another uh, so from uh, a, a black firefighter to a, uh, a Croatian medical doctor, this is, this is very difficult, Rabbi, because once again, I don't, you know, we don't have, we don't have the time. And I don't That's wanna, why we pay you uh, the big but, bucks, Zara. You can, I know you can do it. You can surface the right one. As I said, I, I, I've spent a lot of time in Germany, uh, both when I was younger and over the years. And you know, I should say that my, my family uh, wasn't directly affected by the Holocaust. My family has been in the United States um, for close to two centuries, uh, actually. But, you know, it's always interesting conversations with, with friends in our community about having spent so much time in Germany. But I, I, I profile an incredible attorney. And yeah, if we remember, so the wall falls, East and West Germany reunify. But you know, from a, a legal sense and from a, a, a construction sense, it's a massive opportunity. 
You have to completely revisit every single law in the books. You need to build an entire new legal code. And in the process, and just from a granular perspective of the real estate industry, uh, just think of everything that was happening in the early 90s. So I profile uh, a, uh, an attorney, Marcus Stotzel, who had just uh, finished the German equivalent of the bar, who uh, thought his career was set. He's, uh, you know, he's at a Frankfurt-based uh, real estate law firm. Everything's going quite well. Um, and once again, completely by happenstance, a friend says, you know, there's an older woman, really, she's, she's been on my case. She's been looking for help. I just don't really have answers. I don't have the time. Long story short, once again, without giving it away, this is the first Jew that Marcus had met. Uh, Marcus now to this day is, is, uh, I would say the, not one of the, the, uh, finest and most courageous, uh, restitution lawyers, uh, in Germany certainly come at great expense. I'm sure if he had chosen his original uh, path, uh, he would have, you know, he would have been much more lucrative, but uh, he not only helped out this uh, elderly Holocaust survivor at the time in the early uh, 90s, uh, get her her property, her family's property back uh, from former East German authorities, but he's built a name for himself. Uh, Once again, not in the headlines necessarily, but built a name for himself, helping out uh, Holocaust survivors and their heirs on very complex restitution cases. Fabulous. So what do you hope this book will accomplish by highlighting all these men and women that are maybe off the radar and not well-known in the community and not not even Jewish, obviously? Uh, What do you you hope that it will accomplish within the Jewish community or, or beyond? You know, the, the process of writing the book, it taught me uh, to, to focus on optimism. And it's, it's really what I hope to teach our, our daughter. We, our, our daughter was born uh, just, just one month into the pandemic in, in April of 2020. And uh, look, there's probably thousands of stories out there, like the eight that I profile. Uh, I was just looking personally for a reason to be hopeful. You know, my wife was entering the Second trimester, um, as those horrible attacks in, in, in Muncie and Jersey City happened, um, and then the third trimester, as, as uh, pandemic becomes a household word and PPE becomes a household word. Uh, so I, you know, I just think we need to look for the positive. Uh, these are really uncertain times for our community, um, and I think that. Hopefully, this is a bit of an antidote. You know, I had uh, the the publisher who's who's based in Jerusalem said, you know, that 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 the book could be read. Frankly, you know, it's it's all this, it's being sold as we speak at Ben Gurion Airport, but it could be read, you know, on the plane. Uh, it's it's only 145 pages, as I said. They're fast paced, eight short stories, and and hopefully, God forbid, there's just another attack of some sort. Um, you know, hopefully, these stories that have inspired me can inspire folks over the course of a weekend or uh, so. Do you feel like the book has a message for non-Jews as well? Oh, I think so. I mean, these are these are by and large just just everyday people who eat too, you know, very diverse, but every single one of them in my my conversations with them made very clear that they at the time and even to this day didn't really think twice about what they were doing. It just was the right thing to do. And I think that each of us should just once again, if we if we focus more on the positive and the optimism, it's uh, it just you know it's too it's too easy to point to the bad and to dwell on uh, uh, the bad and the negative. Um, and that's that's frankly actually where the title of the book comes from. Where could people find the book and uh, who published it and, and so forth? Uh, it was published by uh, Geffen, which um, uh, listeners might know. That Geffen's out of Jerusalem, one of the oldest and largest uh, publishing houses in our community. It was, it was an honor to get a contract with them about a year ago. And we spent the past year, uh, certainly with edits, but uh, building up endorsements. Uh, it's been really humbling to get endorsements from Senator Lieberman and Abe Foxman and, and, and other leaders in our community, Rabbi Weil, uh, Rabbi Wolpe. And, you know, I, I, beyond the Geffen website, I, I suppose folks can go to Amazon. It is uh, just now being launched uh, in, in the United States. Uh, it's been on shelves um, and uh, things are going quite well in Israel, but it's only now coming to the U.S. Fabulous. Well, we'll be sure to uh, link to the book uh, in the show notes. People should go on Amazon and uh, take a look. Uh, sounds like a, a wonderful, kind of a breezy read and an inspiring read as well. And really, I think unique book to have a you know a, a very committed Jew featuring 
the non-Jews out there and and rather than the alarmism about anti-Semitism and all that's going wrong uh, in those relations to be able to highlight where those relationships can go right and where you know we can find those bridges and where people from the broader world have supported our community and you know recognize the beauty of our community and um i think that's a, hopefully a recipe for a a better future well thank you so much uh i, I referenced the uh, ukraine and i'm reminded of um in December 2016, my my wife uh, had to be in Israel for work, and once again, like any nice Jewish boy, um, I joined her. I jumped at the opportunity, but we extended the trip, and it was uh, coinciding with Hanukkah, um, which uh, was one of the rare years that Hanukkah fell over Christmas as well. So it was just an exciting time to be in Israel. But like any nice Jewish boy, I I went to Israel via Ukraine, and I reconnected with some of the uh, friends who I referenced, um, and I got that that at that time I got the chance to go to the Baal Shem Tov's mikvah. Uh, the Baal Shem Tov, a, you know, a great, inspiring uh, leader from uh, the 18th century, I, I believe. And then, you know, jumping into the mikvah, 36 some degrees, it's always made me intrigued about the Baal Shem Tov. But I'll end with this, Rabbi, that he, uh, in his writings, uh, would often compare uh, secrets to light. And uh, these eight individuals, they, they shared, you know, very deep philosophical, personal um, uh, secrets with me. And at the time, and they continue to provide me a little light during these dark times that I hope that uh, your listeners, uh, future readers, hopefully will uh, will also get a little light uh, as well. Well, we think about it, no coincidence, maybe with a number of eight who are uh, profiled on your uh, in your book and the eight nights of Hanukkah. We're recording here on the on the first day of Hanukkah. Will come out probably after Hanukkah, but Hanukkah that that power of eight and the light that it represents. So uh, I think very appropriate and uh, portentous in in our timing here. Ari Middleman, Paths of the Righteous. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you again for having me. Thanks for the work you're doing. And just a final reminder to join me along with almost 8,000 other people as a daily donor to dailygiving.org. You will be thrilled with yourself for days, months, and years to come. Dailygiving.org, proud sponsor of Jews You Should Know. Please join me in signing up right now. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at jewsyoushouldknow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at Jews You Should Know. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Jews You Should Know. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews You Should Know.